April 7, 1976. Japanese tonight, uh, a nation known for its ingenuity, and, uh, yeah, well, it's part of the mysterious, the mysterious, inscrutable East, right? And we are part of the mysterious, inscrutable West. To the Japanese, we are very inscrutable. Oh, absolutely. I remember one time being in a Japanese department store, and they had this dummy that would greet you as you came in. Yeah, that's right. They had a mechanical dummy. You know, like the kind that Walt Disney has at Disney World? You know, that uh, is a is a uh, dummy that looks like Abraham Lincoln or a dummy that looks like uh, George Washington. Have you ever seen those things? They're fantastic. You know, they're all transistorized. And they move and they give speeches and all that stuff and they walk around and they sign the Declaration of Independence. What are they? <laughs> A little spooky. But uh, you come into this Japanese store, see, and they got this dummy as you come in. And the dummy stands there and greets you. And bows. He's dressed like a a uh, floor walker. You know, they used to have floor walkers in department stores with the, with the dark coat with the flower and the lapel, see. And he's got this uh, snappy foulard tie and an elegant white shirt. And he bows as you come in. He goes, He just keeps bowing. And of course, as the people come charging into the department store, they bow to him. And he is greeting them. So, uh, inscrutable. I, I see the day, though, when they're going to have mechanical dummies that work in the complaint department. In fact, I suspect there are some mechanical dummies that work in the complaint department, and you get no further ahead with them than you do with any average mechanical dummy. <laughs> you complain, the dummy says, well, uh, you'll have to fill out the form. 
And you say, well, look at, look at this thing. Look, I got my hand caught in it. I can't get my hand out of it. This thing is supposed to work. Look, my hand's caught. Well, you'll have to fill out the form. But look at my hand. I can't get my hand out. And, and, uh, and uh, what am I going to do? Well, you'll have to fill out the form. 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 The Stepford wives are with us. Bum, ba-dum, bum. We also have to salute the Japanese for another thing. You know, the Japanese, uh, a toilet tissue company in Japan, has worked out a fantastic new device for the Japanese to learn English. On every sheet of the toilet tissue that they have uh, in Japan, they have an English word written, and underneath it, it's Japanese counterpart. So you can learn uh, the language all the while... Uh, well, would you please bring it up? That's it. That's it. Bring it up to uh, the good folks out there, you know. Lots to do, 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 do. Lots to 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 do, do, I think the reason that uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm acting like this is very bad. I'm very bad tonight. I'll tell you, I, I never forget. I was hit. I was hit by a you know, sudden realization today. I go into the bank, and uh, I go down. You know, uh, you've gone to the bank occasionally, haven't you? Every time you go to the bank, you you know these cameras are are uh, going. You don't know this. You know, they never say it. But the cameras are going all the time. You see. And uh, do you take stances and stuff when you come into a bank so that you, you look good in the camera? You know, you stand there, you fling your arms out, you walk straight. <laughs> After all, well, look at what the, look what one of those bank cameras did to the career of Patty Hearst. I mean, that film, she, she listen, they got more footage out of that film, for heaven's sakes, than anything Robert Redford ever did. I was on every newscast in the world. And uh, she looked quite good in it. You know, she moved real good in that thing. A little jerky, but she moved okay, you know. And uh, so I'm always careful. When I go into a bank, I make sure that my makeup is, you know, I'm stage makeup. I never go into a bank any longer without putting on decent makeup. And, uh, oh, sure. And I put my shades on. Look very cool. You know, very cool. And uh, I move good when I go in the bank there. So I, I, I went to the bank of this, and I'm walking along there, moving real good, you know, stage moving I keep giving him my good profile see because I suspect I know where the camera is it's hidden behind the picture of our founder I go I go to one of the very few banks our founder well you know there's almost every place there's a guy called our founder and uh, I go to one of the very few banks I think of any place in the country that's named after a writer yeah named after a writer you thinking about that? Who is that, huh? Chase? Well, you, yeah, I, I realize that there was a mystery writer named Isadora M. Ploutworthy Chase, 
who uh, wrote these elegant mysteries in England. But that's not the that's not the one I'm talking about. Then. What 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 bank is named after a, a writer here in New York? That's correct. Of course, you got it right. I'm sorry, Ronnie. You're right, Irving. And the writer, of course, was Seymour Irving, who was a columnist for the Village Voice back in its early days. Uh, he wrote a thing called The Village Lout. No, it was The Village Square. What was it? No. All right, who was the writer? Washington Irving. And Washington Irving was known for creating what character? Right. The Headless Horseman. The Headless Horseman. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, did you see the stamp they had about the Headless Horseman? They had a great stamp here a couple of months back of the Headless Horseman riding through the night with the with the moon standing up above him. I mean, you know, it's a, I suspect that we're going to have a stamp eventually commemorating King Kong. You know, great characters. Out of, why not? A King, that would be a great stamp. A King Kong stamp. How about a Tarzan stamp? You know, Tarzan with his head on the foot of a, you know, standing there with his foot there, planted on the head of a lion, beating his chest, hollering what Tarzan did. In fact, that was a big, uh, big thing when I was a kid. Kids always worked on their Tarzan yell. Did you ever work on a Tarzan yell, Ronnie? How, how, how are you at it? Yeah, you know, lousy. That's right. But uh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> well, now you see the the, the Tarzan yell uh, also was you, you realize in the original Tarzan stories. For those of you who never read Tarzan but only saw him in the movies, you must realize that Tarzan was very different from the way he was presented in the movies. I'm talking about the the, the book Tarzan. First of all, that yell that Tarzan gave was always a yell of victory and warning to all the other creatures of the jungle that Tarzan, the man-animal, after all, he was part man, part animal, or he'd been raised by what? Tarzan had been raised on the, in the jungle by what? As a baby. Apes, correct. And he was, I mean, he didn't even know what man was like, you know. He didn't know any mankind. And he was, he had all the strength of the giant gorillas, you see. He was tremendous. And, uh, and Tarzan, uh, when, when he was fighting, for example, with one of the great passages, I will quote, Tarzan stood over his fallen foe as the great lion breathed its last. And as the lion expired in the hot, fetid jungle, as the great killer beast slowly died, you'll give me a little echo chamber on this if you can. I'll give you the cue for it. Tarzan placed his foot on the dying lion's head. He flung his head back at the dreaded ape-man's cry, the cry of victory and the primal cry warning all the other beasts of the jungle that Tarzan, the ape-man, had killed again, rang out. The jungle fell silent as the echoing sound 
of the immense victory cry of Tarzan the ape-man rang out, and the jungle knew that the killer had killed again. And the ape-man took a stone knife from its scabbard. And as the jungle fell quiet, he ate of the still quivering flesh of his fallen foe. Did you know that that was that was from the original time? Yes, I'm not inventing it, buddy. Tarzan was something else. <laughs> All right, I'll ask you another question then, if you're a Tarzan freak. Tarzan, who was Tarzan's father? That's very important to the Tarzan stories. He had a father. And... Uh, his father and his mother. And how did Tarzan come to be in the jungle? You think he was just there? Oh, no. Oh, no. See, this, this, this is all part, of the, all part of the culture of our time. <laughs> you should know about this. And, uh, oh, yes. Uh, and you see, the thing that, that Tarzan did when he gave out that scream, he struck primal fear into the heart of his fellow jungle creatures. See, Tarzan didn't even know he was a man, you know. Tarzan didn't know this. He was raised by apes. He was part of the jungle. And who was the first human being that Tarzan actually saw? It was not Jane. I'll give you that clue. You know, me, Tarzan, you, Jane. No way. See, you thought you knew so much, didn't you? <laughs> oh, ignorance, thy name is W.O.R. New York. All right, okay. Now listen, now this is a very serious time here. I mean, I sorry I told you all about Tarzan there. You used to think Tarzan was just a guy that, you know, could swim and wrestle with alligators. Oh, no, oh, no, something else. Uh, a very serious moment here in the show. Uh, for the last couple of uh, weeks, I've been playing colleges all over, and I just played MIT. Oh, yeah, that's an official school, I'll tell you. And I uh, had a great show. It's the first time I've ever really let it all hang out and told jokes about Lissajou figures and conic sections. <laughs> I have a wonderful, obscene story about uh, quadratic equations. It's terrific. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, it was a great night. And all these kids, you know, it's all engineers and stuff there. And after after the show, we all went out and, and uh, went to this place where they all hang out. MIT has a place called 20 Chimneys. And uh, we all sat around and, and ate the scientifically designed cheeseburgers. They were designed with, uh, you know, as uh, well, you know as well as I do that after the time when you get a cheeseburger, you pick it up and it's too fat to bite. Or, when you tilt it, it drips down and it runs down into your elbow. And your brand new suit from Barney's, 
you know, and the whole scene. So these kids, of course, being engineers, they have scientifically designed. I have seen the cheeseburger of the future, and it works. So for those of you who have given up on the future of mankind, there's a lot of stuff brewing at MIT. I have seen the cheeseburger of the future, and it works. There was one other kid, too. You know, he worked out. He was the first engineer I've ever seen that worked with practical things. You know when you take a, uh, you take a box of cereal or something, and it has this little dotted line around the top, and there's a little thing that's a dotted line about the thumb, and it says press in here and pull back tab and how it never works? And first of all, you press it in, the whole box crushes on the top. Then finally, you, you know, you mess around, and finally you get so mad, you just go, Aah! you just tear off the top of the box, and you suspect that other people are actually doing it right. Well, he has devised a package that actually opens when you press the tab. Now, he's keeping it under wraps. So I would like to suggest that the future does work. Now, uh, for those of you who are engineers, and I have always felt, that, that mankind divides itself off of the various categories, almost from birth. And it, they're very subtle, and they're much more complex than even Freud would have imagined. For example, there are the people from birth, practically, and nobody knows why. They'll grow up in a family where nobody else is like that, has a technical mind from birth. You know, there's the certain kids that say they, they wonder how a doorbell works. Now, there are other kids who just not only <laughs> couldn't care less, but, uh, you know, they, they hardly ever use the doorbell. They just kick the door. Uh, and, I, and I can't explain how I got to be that kind. But from the time I was a little kid, I was, you know, I was into that stuff. I really was. My kid brother, no interest whatsoever. No interest whatsoever. I'm very proud to say that I was one of the first kids in our neighborhood to burn a hole in the living room rug with a Gilbert chemistry kit set. Absolutely. And uh, doing experiments that were not in the book. You know, they give you this little book with the chemistry set. You get chemistry set number 12, the one where you can make salt, or you can make this, you make all these various, you know, you can change uh, blue water into orange, titration, you know, and you take a litmus paper and dip it in, and you run these experiments... Well, I, uh, I, you know, I went beyond the book, and the next thing you know, the rug is on fire. However, uh, I never stopped from that time on. I, I can't help it. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm a gadget type. I, I, you know, I look at an electronic clock. My hands itch. Uh, the Heathkit syndrome. I mean, uh, it takes a certain uh, imagination on part of a guy to to want to build his own color television set you know, with, with associated uh, uh, videotape recording uh, facilities. It comes with a Chinese modern plastic bar, <laughs> the whole thing. And, of course, the, he could just as easy go down and buy it, see, but he wants to build it. And the exciting one is when he plugs it in. And then after the fire department is left, and, uh, and you know, everybody's, <laughs> everybody's calmed down. <laughs> Oh, these are exciting moments. And I would like to salute a guy. Now, I, when I was a kid, I used, to, I used to sit in the back, for example. I remember 
Did you ever remember sitting in class when you were a kid and you'd hear something said uh, by a teacher and uh, you would uh, you would say to yourself, uh, uh, well, then why don't they do such and so? Well, I'll give you an example. I had this teacher who taught science. You ever, ever, ever have a science teacher when you were a kid? Science. See, that's eighth grade, right? So there was this teacher named Miss Bailey who taught science. And, uh, you know, she looked like, uh, she, I'll tell you who she looked like, a little bit like uh, Mrs. Bunker, of Archie Bunker. <laughs> she was a nice lady. And Mrs. Mrs. Bailey taught science. And we had this science workbook. It was a blue book. And uh, it had stuff like uh, gravity. There'd be a whole chapter on gravity. Then there would be a chapter on uh, chemistry, the world of chemistry. And, of course, it had a periodic table and it discussed the elements. And, you know, very simple science. And so one day, Mrs. Bailey was up there, and she was one of these nice ladies. You know, she, she says, I don't know how the hell she ever got to be a science teacher. She, you know, she was totally unscientific. But uh, there she was, nice lady. So she, she had jiggling jowls. And so one day, she's up there in front, see, and she says, uh, no, she said, uh, uh, we were in the chemistry section. Now, this was in a, just a one-semester course, and we covered the whole world of science in one semester, you know, just sort of thing. So she says, now, boys and girls, you all know that when you burn, say, uh, you, a piece of wood, and the piece of wood is burning, this is called oxidation, and the oxygen in the air combines, and the, the flames burn up the wood. Now, uh, the... It, the, the, merely what we are doing is changing one form of energy into another. And we have heat and we have various forms of gases that arise from the burning. Now, after the burning is over, the, all that is left, actually, we have, we've not lost anything because it's all gone into various different forms of energy. And what is left is what we call the ash. Now, ashes, of course, are the parts of the wood or whatever it is that the oxidation is taking place on, that do not burn and are the residue, but nevertheless, they can be weighed, and it's all part of the same piece of original wood. Now those, I'm sitting back there here, and you see, Shepard's great eighth-grade scientific aha discovery. It suddenly hit me, whoa. If you have this stuff left over from burning, see, and it won't burn. Like if you burn a bone, see, there's certain stuff left over that will not burn. Why not take that stuff and make fireproof bricks out of it? It's already, you can't burn. Well, I've always felt, you know, I got the right backing one day. <laughs> Every, you know, and now, now, I realize that most kids don't think about that stuff. They just sit there, have no scientific interest at all, no curiosity whatsoever. It's, and it always intrigues me how the most exciting things around you. People, most people, have absolutely no interest. For example, you're listening to me on a radio. I would venture to say 90% of the people have no interest, nor even the faintest knowledge of how the hell that thing works. How is it that you can hear my voice out of this little bitty box that you paid $12 for? I would say 
The average man walking around 6th Avenue today, if you walked out and just stopped the average guy, out of a thousand people, the average man has about as much scientific information, true scientific knowledge in his head, as a man of roughly the late 16th century. Would you agree with that or not? And yet he has all this stuff around him. See, but he doesn't know a damn thing about it. Most guys couldn't tell you how a light bulb works. Why does a light bulb give off light? Well, because you screw it in, huh? You turn on the electricity, right? <laughs> well, see, no, no, no interest whatsoever. And people, when you ask people these things, they just sort of look at you like, well, who cares about this? And that is beyond me. I mean, the average person does not know why an airplane flies. What keeps an airplane up? Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'll give you another one. Why does a car go? Or you said it was because a motor in it. Well, wait a minute. What makes the motor work? In other words, does the average person have any concept of what the internal combustion is? And for that reason, of course, we can have all kinds of charlatans come around because most of us have no knowledge whatsoever of science. And, and charlatans can take advantage of this, of course. And uh, since the average man is both, on one hand, impressed by science, he's also afraid of it. See, man is always afraid of anything he doesn't understand. Fear comes from not understanding. <laughs> and so the average guy is really scared, you know. They're going to put this atomic power plant. We're all going to blow up. He has no... Uh, he confuses atomic power plants with atomic bombs. That's like uh, confusing your radio, because it's got electricity in it, with electric chairs. But uh, this this is easy enough when you don't know any. You know it's 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 grasping constantly. And I would like to salute a guy tonight. Uh, you know you you heard about the Guinness Book of Records, and uh, you know almost everything in the Guinness Book of Records is kind of stupid. You know, like uh, who could eat the most prunes in one given hour? Takes no talent to do that. Just a big trap, and uh, you know an endless uh, supply of prunes, and. Uh, then there will be a, a Guinness Book of Records, the guy that can jump up and down on one foot the longest. You know, really stupid. But did you know that there is a Guinness Book of Records that a guy is going for that takes real talent? Real engineering talent. And for those of you who are into engineering, I want, I want you to listen to this. A Michigan man is shooting for a place in the Guinness Book of Records. Some guy out in Michigan. And listen to what he's doing. If you have got something heavy that you want lifted, Dixon Smith, who is an engineer, by the way, is the guy that's got it. Smith is an engineer, lives in Muskegon, Michigan, and he has invented... Now, listen carefully to this. Don't, don't, don't turn off and say, oh, this is dull, I'm not going to listen. Listen to what he's done. He's invented a contraption that will move, move anything in the world or out of it, for that matter. Smith says that his device can lift the weight of the earth 729 billion times over. Did you hear what I just said? He's invented 
the thing that can lift the greatest weight. No, he's not crazy. No way. No way. Oh, no. Listen carefully to what he's done. Smith's, see, that's the, the person who doesn't have any knowledge of engineering would say, oh, that's crazy. Not so. No way. Smith says his device can lift the, the earth 729 billion times over. Unlike the ancient Greek mathematician Archimedes, you remember Archimedes' famous line, give me a place to stand and I'll move the earth? All Smith needs is a 120-volt electrical outlet. That's for the power of the electric clock motor that runs his machine. Smith designed and built this steel and plexiglass contraption in his home workshop. He worked on it for about 10 years using $70 worth of materials, and it consists of 35 simple gears, some springs, and a motor. Now listen carefully. Smith says that his invention has no useful purpose whatsoever, but he believes it could easily get him into the Guinness Book of Records. Because there is a, if you have a Guinness Book of Records, look this up. The slowest moving designed mechanism in the world, and it's in the book, is a clock in the town hall of Copenhagen, Denmark. That's the slowest moving mechanism in the world currently. It takes 25,700 years for the celestial pole motion of the clock to complete a full circle. 25,000 years to go in a circle. And that's a clock that's in Denmark, right? Smith says this is child's play. His gadget will set two world's records right from the start. Quote, it is the slowest moving design mechanism, and it's got more torque than any other instrument in the world. Now here's what happens. The first gear... See, he's got a motor in there. The first gear revolves at 3,000 RPM, 3,000 revolutions per minute. That's the first gear. And each successive gear moves 15 times slower than the one preceding it. See, they're all gears, right? The 11th gear, then, makes a complete turn every 24 years, Smith says. But listen to this. Gear number 14 revolves once every 73,448 years. That's the 14th gear. What this means is that gear number 35, now get this, this is gear number 35, and he has it in there. It's, it's actually built. That gear will complete a revolution once every 46 octillion centuries. Now this is all mathematically true. You're not kidding at all. Smith figures that the 25th gear has enough torque to lift the weight of the earth. That's the 25th gear. And gear 35 has 729 billion times more torque than gear 25. Fantastic part. Now, torque, of course. We're not going to go into a, a technical description of what torque is. But uh, uh, here's a guy who... Uh, now, that kind of thing would, would interest, I would say, roughly one person out of give or take, probably ten. I can't imagine Howard Cosell being interested in that. <laughs> but the idea of designing a machine where, the, where the, uh, the, a gear revolves once every 
40 octillion years, and it is still, you know, it is actually moving. If you took a, a very, very slow motion micro photograph of the gear, you could actually see that it was in fact moving. But it would have to be a very, very speeded up, slow-mo type of photography. And you could actually see it moving. And, uh, and you know, uh, this is totally useless. But it's just like, uh, you know, almost everything else we do. I mean, let's face it. Uh, what is Roy White's batting average worth? I mean, isn't that fairly useless? What is uh, Tom Seaver's ERA? Isn't that fairly useless in the cosmic scheme of things? I mean, what president we elect or don't elect this year in the cosmic scheme of things that will be totally uh, meaningless? Can you imagine 5,000 years from now people worrying about who was elected in the year 1976? Or even if there's an America 5,000 years from now. Or even a North American continent for that matter. The great waters wash. But that gear will slowly be moving. At 5,000 years from now, do you realize that gear will have barely moved a millimeter? <laughs> huh. Well, I mean, useless, right? But after all, I have a friend who uh, collects bird whistles on tape. Oh, yes, he's got a very rare woodpecker that he collected in a Jersey swamp on tape. Sounds like somebody dropping a book off an end table. He listens to it hour after hour. I know another person who loves Baskin-Robbins pumpkin ice cream cones. I know, that I know another guy who tried to eat all the Slim Jims in Newark, New Jersey one night. Didn't quite make it. Because, you see, he was washing each one down with one finger of Jim Beam. Got pretty exciting around about 3 in the morning. Each man does his best, right, Ronnie? <laughs> this is WOR New York. Stay tuned for In Conversation, will you?